This morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 13 verses 10 through to 17. The woman with a spirit of infirmity. The woman with a spirit of infirmity. We'll be considering the power and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ in a passage in which Jesus releases or delivers a woman from a spirit of infirmity that she'd had for 18 years. It's a long time, isn't it? A spirit of infirmity that had caused her to be bowed together. In other words, she was bent double. We'll also see the mixed response of the people who witnessed that miraculous healing. The venue was a synagogue in which Jesus was teaching And it is the last mention in Luke's Gospel of a synagogue being graced by the presence of God, the incarnate Son of God. Before we go any further, a synagogue is presumably a place where people go to worship God. Yet what we shall see in this passage, and not for the first time, is God manifest in the flesh in a synagogue with those who opposed him doing anything but worshipping him. It brings to mind what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 about the church in Smyrna. Jesus said, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. The first mention of a synagogue was way back in chapter 4. On that occasion, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus and he read Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1 where the prophet said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He have sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. If you remember when, way back in chapter 4, when Jesus read that, uh, that prophecy, he then went on to declare himself the fulfilment of those words, which had been spoken by Isaiah 700 years or more earlier. Jesus declared himself to be the anointed one with the spirit of the Lord upon him. What the people in that synagogue back in chapter 4 did, or what they did not do rather, was prostrate themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ in humble adoration. What they did do was rise up filled with anger and they thrust him out of the city with a view to thrusting him over a hilltop but he passed through the midst of them but again can you imagine that in a synagogue the son of god reading the scriptures and and saying this is the full, this is about me people should have fallen prostrate before him on their bellies For the ground that they stood on was holy ground. But instead they thrust him out of the synagogue 
with a view to throwing them over a hilltop. (coughs) What we're considering today happened over three years after the events in chapter 4, and soon the time would come when Jesus would no longer pass through wicked men. Instead, in accordance with the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, the Lord would be taken, and by wicked hands, he would be crucified and put to death. Not thrown over a hilltop, but crucified and put to death, precisely as he had told his disciples would happen. And of course he would rise again on the third day, having paid the price for sin. First of all, what we can consider is the woman had a spirit of infirmity. Bearing in mind that Luke was a physician, he would have been well able to say that the woman's ailment was a fever or something like that. If that's what she had, he was able to diagnose precisely what she had. He was a doctor. This is precisely what he did in chapter 4 and verse 38 when he said that Peter's mother-in-law had a great fever. However, it's evident in our passage that the woman's condition was demonic in nature. We're plainly told in verse 11 that she had a spirit of infirmity. And in verse 16, it can be seen that she was in fact bound by Satan. Although Jesus did not, uh, sorry, although Jesus did cast out demons, there's nothing to suggest in our passage that the woman was actually demon possessed, but she was nevertheless undergoing a prolonged attack by the powers of darkness. Prolonged. We're talking about 18 long years of having a spirit of infirmity, of being under attack by dark forces. Little or no consideration seems to be given nowadays to the possibility that people who are afflicted mentally or even physically, as was the case with the woman in our passage, might be bound in some way by an evil spirit, if not possessed and indwelt by an evil spirit. There's no reason to think that these things don't happen anymore. It's as well to appreciate and remember that under the sovereignty of Almighty God, the devil is still the prince of this world. He's still the God of this world. What can be said with certainty is that all who have not been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins... Are the devil's pawns in this world and they do the devil's bidding in this world. Everyone who is not trusting in Jesus is doing the devil's bidding. And the devil is your master. No doubt I'm referring to at least one of you in here right now who is a child of the evil one despite being in a place of worship. If that is you, you need to repent and you need to believe the gospel. 
as to why the woman had been afflicted with a spirit of infirmity for 18 long years, we're not told. And we needn't jump to the conclusion that she had been particularly sinful, more sinful than everyone else. That was the mistake that was made back in verses 1 through to 3 of chapter 13 where there were people who reported to Jesus that Pilate had mingled the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. They jumped to the conclusion that the Galileans must have been sinners above all other Galileans. Jesus simply called on the people who came to him with that report to show repentance towards God for their own sin. Also in John chapter 9, There was a man who was born blind. The disciples wrongly assumed that he was born blind because of his sins or the sins of his parents. I fail to see how that man would have been born blind because of his own sins. Anyway, Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 9, Neither have this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. In other words, that God would be glorified. And that is of paramount importance, that God is glorified, and he will be glorified. He will be glorified if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and living a born-again life for the glory of God. And God will be glorified if he rightly, if he justly condemns you to hell as a hell-deserving sinner. Either way, God is glorified. To God be the glory, the victory and the majesty. Secondly, the woman glorified God. As has already been mentioned, Jesus performed various miraculous signs. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus perform these miraculous signs such as um, healing the woman with the spirit of affliction, in, in, of infirmity in the synagogue? Jesus performed miraculous signs so that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have name, uh, life through his name. And again, to God be the glory when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was certainly the case with the man in John's Gospel who was born blind. He progressed from referring to Jesus as a man at the beginning of John chapter 9. Some verses later, he then referred to Jesus as a prophet. It's getting better, isn't it, from being a man to a prophet And then finally, in John chapter 9 and verse 35, Jesus said to him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? This is Jesus speaking to someone who was born blind and who referred to Jesus as a man earlier on. Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. 
That's what it's all about. Yes, it's wonderful, isn't it, that that man's sight was restored. But this is what it's all about. Worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing him for who he is, the son of the living God. As for the woman in today's passage, according to verse 13, she glorified God. He laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. She did so upon being delivered of her affliction. In in doing so, she acknowledged the living God. And even though we're not told if she actually believed Jesus to be the Son of God, and if she believed him to be her saviour from sin, we're not told, we can't assume that that was the case. Even so, she certainly recognised that Jesus was sent by God. By way of application, you'd think there would be nothing more natural than for all of us, the whole world, to glorify God and to praise him for his marvellous works. But is that how it is? Does this world glorify God? Of course it doesn't. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, man did not glorify God despite the fact that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that man is without excuse the whole world can see something of God in the things that he has made his power, his creative handiwork. They are without excuse. I wonder if that applies to someone in here right now. Someone who accepts the nonsensical lie of evolution rather than give God the glory for his creative handiwork. Someone who steadfastly rejects Jesus despite all the evidence in the Bible of him being the Christ, the Son of God. Someone who rejects Jesus even though there can be nothing more wonderful than knowing him as your saviour. Why would you reject Jesus? The most beautiful thing there is, is to know him and to have him as your saviour from sin. As the God of your salvation. If that's you. Bent double under the heavy burden of your sin. And unable to look up to heaven. Because that's what you are. If you are not trusting in Christ. Bent double under the weight of your sin. Then Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus. 
as a repentant sinner. Receive him. Believe on his name. And he gives you the power, or he will give you the power, the right, the great privilege to become a son or daughter of the living God. Join with others in here who worship God in spirit and in truth. Embracing Jesus who is the truth. And worship God in beauty, in the beauty of holiness. Saying blessing and honour and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne. And unto the Lamb for ever and ever. Amen. Thirdly, we have the hypocrisy of the ruler of the synagogue. Let's have a look at Luke 13, verses 14 and 15. The hypocrisy of the ruler of the synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work. In them, therefore, come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? In stark contrast to the woman who glorified God upon being delivered of her spiritual affliction, the ruler of the synagogue was very displeased with Jesus. He responded with indignation, not directly to Jesus though. He did so in a backhanded way when he addressed the people. Jesus called him a hypocrite which he showed himself to be with his play acting and his pretense of addressing the people, addressing everyone else when he was in fact attacking Jesus. He was a hypocrite. The gist of that man's complaint was that people were coming into the synagogue for healing on the Sabbath day, but more to the point, his problem was not so much with them, his problem with, was with Jesus who did the healing when he laid his hands on the woman and he said to her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. That's what he didn't like. They must have been the most beautiful words that that woman had ever heard. Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. Think about it, as Spurgeon pointed out. For 18 years she had not gazed upon the sun. For 18 years no star of night had gladdened her eye. Her face was drawn downward towards the dust and all the light of her life was dim. She walked about as if she were searching for a grave and I do not doubt she often felt that it would have been gladness to have found one. The hands of the Lord Jesus Christ would soon be pierced when he would be nailed to a cross by wicked men. But for now, in our passage, he laid his hands on the woman and then he healed her, as indeed he laid them on others, such as on the body of a 12-year-old girl 
who was dead. When Jesus did that, he said, Maid, arise, speaking to the dead girl. We're told in chapter 8 that at the time that the girl was dying, her father begged Jesus to come to his house and he fell down at Jesus' feet. Interestingly, the girl's father was also a synagogue ruler, but one who worshipped God. He was very different to the synagogue ruler that we're looking at today. The leader of the synagogue that we're considering today would no doubt have seen the woman in her pitiful condition on numerous occasions. Yet the only thing that seemed to occupy his wicked mind was the tradition of the elders, which to his annoyance was being broken. Never mind the fact that Jesus had just delivered that poor woman from her miserable condition. That man would have done well to glorify God along with the woman and indeed others in the synagogue for that matter. Instead of complaining about the traditions of men being broken. What can be seen with the Son of God laying his hands on his creatures is his love and his compassion for them, as sinful and as undeserving as they are of anything good from him. We deserve nothing from Jesus, nothing good at all. That said, Jesus did not have to lay his hands on people when he healed them or when he raised them from the dead. He didn't need to do that. For example, Jesus did not lay his hands on Lazarus when he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. Now that Jesus is seated on the right hand of the throne of God, having become obedient unto death, Even the death of the cross, he is no longer laying his hands on the afflicted and on the dead. Even so, the good news is that he is still willing and able to heal the afflicted and and raise up the dead. He's still doing it. And guess what? You are both afflicted and you are dead if you are not trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. In fact, your spiritual affliction is infinitely worse than the affliction that we're considering in our passage today, being bent double. In fact, you are a spiritual leper and you are dead in your sins if you are not trusting in Christ. You are unfit for heaven and for the company of a holy and righteous God. The good and wonderful news is that the Lord Jesus Christ is still healing people who are afflicted with sin and he is still raising them up to new and everlasting life. Just listen to the testimony of the Apostle Paul who before he trusted in Jesus as his saviour, persecuted the church and even witnessed and assented to the death of Christians. In the following statement that the apostle made to the church in Ephesus, he was careful to include himself when he said, 
God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us. In other words, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace are ye saved and have raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Therefore, having been made alive with Christ, past tense there, Paul speaking to the Ephesian Christians, he has made us alive. He has raised us up to newness of life in Christ. They now sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Present tense. He's gone from the past tense to the present tense. What Paul said to the Ephesian Christians is equally applicable to all of you who show repentance towards God, acknowledging your pathetic and your pitiful condition, and consequently you are now someone who is trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Even now, dear Christian, you have been raised up to new and everlasting life. In Jesus. That has happened. It's not something that will happen. It has happened. And now. Present tense. You have boldness. To enter into the holiest. Into heaven itself. By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way. Which he. Jesus. Has consecrated for us. Through the veil. That is to say. His flesh. Even now, we're here in this world, but if you're a Christian, uh, you you repent of your sins, you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have that absolute assurance that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. You have the Holy Spirit, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest, or as I heard it mentioned on uh, on, on Wednesday at the Bible study, quite rightly, the deposit. You have the Holy Spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the uh, deposit of your heavenly inheritance. That is now, present tense. Fourthly, lastly, the Lord's answer to the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus called the ruler of the synagogue a hypocrite. And we needn't think that he took him aside and whispered that to him. It's clear from verse 17 that what Jesus said was heard by others, including those who opposed him. And consequently, we read that they were ashamed. Look at verse 17 again. And when he said these things... All his adversaries, all those who opposed him, were ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So you see, Jesus didn't rebuke that man, calling him a hypocrite. Quietly, whispering in his ear. They were all publicly shamed, and quite rightly too, those who heard his opponents. 
Having said that, there's no reason to imagine that the ruler of the synagogue and other hypocrites in that building dropped their pretense of being right with God and they left that place trusting in Jesus as their saviour. I'm not saying there weren't any, maybe there were, but we needn't assume that all of them dropped their pretense and stopped being hypocrites and trusted in Christ. If anything, it's more likely that they sought all the more how they might kill him. I don't know if you are in any way ashamed as well. As you hear the word of God being proclaimed, not just this morning, but every Sunday morning. You come here, when you come here, you hear the word of God being proclaimed. You hear the gospel of Christ. Even though you're still an enemy of Christ, having never trusted in him as your saviour, you still hang on to your pretense of being right with God. That is hypocrisy. If you've heard the gospel for some of you many, many times, and still you somehow (coughs) pretend that you're right with God. When the reality is that you are an enemy of God and the wrath of God abides on you. And that's not too complicated to appreciate, is it? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And what that means is that Jesus was nailed to a cross, lifted up to die for sinners. And there are you sitting there thinking, I don't need Jesus, I'm right with God. The reality is that the wrath of God abides on you. On that note, I want to finish by encouraging you with the words of Jesus to a leper who came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean immediately His leprosy was cleansed. As I've said, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you have spiritual leprosy. You are a spiritual leper. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Worship him in the beauty of holiness, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.